Welcome to AI Arthritis Voices 360, the podcast solving today's most pressing issues in the AI arthritis community. We invite you all to the table, where together we face the daily challenges of autoimmune and autoinflammatory arthritis. Every Sunday, join our fellow patient co-hosts as they lead discussions in the patient community, as well as consult with stakeholders worldwide to solve the problems that matter most. Whether you are a loved one, a professional working in the field, or a person diagnosed with an AI arthritis disease, this podcast is for you. So pull up a chair and take a seat at the table. Hello and welcome to AI Arthritis Voices 360. My name is Tiffany and I am one of the co-hosts here today because I am not alone. <laughs> I have I have friends. I have co-hosting friends. Who's out there with me? Hi, I'm Estela Mata from Looms for Lupus. And I am Juana Mata from Looms for Lupus. Yay! So those of you who are newly turning into our show, we always have people who are living with, affected by our diseases in some way as co-hosts. So I myself am living with non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis. I am also the CEO of International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis, or just say AI arthritis for short, because <laughs> that's really long. So I, well, I was going to say ladies, but I'm actually going to say sisters because you both call each other sister all the time. And I want to be a sister too. <laughs> yeah, you are. You're our sister Tiffany. Oh, I, I met, I met them. Um, gosh, what we met last year, right? In person for the first time. Last year. And yes. It was like inst instant chemistry, instant. And they call, they kept saying sister sister. And I said, I want to be a sister. So, so sisters, <laughs> why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your relationship to these diseases and your organization? Okay. So I'll start. I'm Estela Mata and I'm one of the co-founders of Looms for Lupus. And Looms for Lupus is a nonprofit organization that provides support for those living with lupus and overlapping conditions such as fibromyalgia, rheumatoid arthritis, and also mental health. And myself, I do not live with lupus. We started our organization because my sister Juana, who is the eldest of seven siblings, was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis and systemic lupus erythematosus. She almost lost her life. And it was something that was very impactful in our family. We're a very close-knit family and we couldn't find support anywhere. The only thing that I knew about lupus was that there was no cure and that it could be deadly, right? Mm -hmm. So it was very scary. It was new to all of us. My mom, uh, we're Hispanic Latino. So my mom does not read or write and she does not speak English. She understands it, but she can't read it or speak it. And one of the things that we realized is as we got together, and this was very scary for all of us, is we only had each other to support and lean on. So we decided to form an organization that would enable other caregivers and loved ones to also get the resources and get the support that we needed. So if we were supporting each other, we would then support others. So I am a caregiver. I am a supporter. I am a national advocate for lupus and rheumatoid arthritis and overlapping conditions. I myself live with fibromyalgia. I was diagnosed a year ago. For a long time, we thought it was lupus because mm -hmm. it mimics so many other illnesses. So it took me many years of pain and suffering and stress and to finally get diagnosed with fibromyalgia. And my daughter, who is now 17 at the age of 13, also was diagnosed with fibromyalgia and chronic migraine. So our advocacy has expanded beyond lupus, rheumatoid arthritis to fibromyalgia and mental health as well. So that's a little bit about me. And I'll you could go ahead and take it. <laughs> yes, on, sister. sister. Uh, like, like my sister said, I was diagnosed. I'm Juana Mata. I was diagnosed with lupus uh, 10 years ago. We started Looms for Lupus. And the reason we called it Looms for Lupus is because to relieve my stress while undergoing different treatments, one chemotherapy in pill form and infusions, I started luminating. And that's how we came about. So in this situation, we are addressing a problem in diversity in clinical trials. 
And I know Juana and Estella, you both have done some work on this. You've you've been at several conferences mm-hmm. over the last, is it the last several years? Is that All right. correct? Correct. On this. So yes. why don't we start by, um, Juana, do you want to tell us a little bit just to, about what clinical trials are? Let's start at the beginning <laughs> for, <laughs> for those who, who are out there, just a little brief overview. Well, uh, a clinical medical trial, oh, sorry, a clinical trial is clinical medical research involving people. And there are different types of, of trials. There's actually two types, observational studies, which gather information from a group of people to compare. Clinical trials are research studies performed in people to find out treatments effectiveness on a new drug or medical device or potential side effects. There are four phases on a clinical trial. There's phase one, that's the test and experimental treatment, usually having 20 to 80 healthy people to judge safety and side effects of the trial. Phase two uses about 100 to 300 people with specific conditions to test the effectiveness of a drug, depending on the study it made last year's. Phase three uses several hundreds and up to 3,000 people testing different populations at different dosages. Usually this phase, the FDA determines if the trial results are positive. And the last phase, phase four, the drug or device is approved by the FDA and monitored for safety and effectiveness. Okay. So that is a great overview. Thank you. And to sum it up, we essentially have a few phases that we do in trials, and it involves a lot of people. (laughs) We need to have a lot of people. And also, I'd like to note, because we are international, that the kind of trial that Juana was referring to and mentioned the FDA, that's the Food and Drug Administration. And there's Mm -hmm. also, depending on where you live, that could be the European Medicines Agency. And the bottom line is there's agencies that monitor the safety and efficacy of these, in this case, drugs, as they go through the different phases so that we ensure that everybody is going to get treatment that's working well for them and, and is safe. And there also are other kinds of trials, too. So it doesn't just have to be on medications or, or treatments or devices. There's clinical trials that are on like fatigue, which whoo, we know that's a big one. Right. right. <laughs> right? So there's non-pharmacologic as well. But the reason that I think we wanted to make sure that it's understood that these phases is because... As Juana said, that's we're starting with a few, but we eventually have to go to a lot of people, Correct. right? And are we really getting everybody in these? So let's just talk about that for a minute. You know, you all have been in this community for a while, and you have a Hispanic, Latino background. Why are, is it so difficult to get diversity in clinical trials? Just out of your experience, things that you've seen, let's talk about that. Yeah, you, you know, you're right. You know, in order to have not only have several people join and hundreds and up to thousands, it does take years. And I think one of the first things you need is some sort of knowledge about clinical trials and the different types of clinical trials. And one of the things that I have seen specifically in the Latino Hispanic community is I never really knew about clinical trials, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. Uh, It wasn't something that, you know, my mom or my dad, they're not physicians. They, They didn't get a higher education here in the United States. So that wasn't something we talked about. I learned about the clinical trials when we were, you know, getting involved more with my sister getting diagnosed and also when we were doing some clinical trials where I work. So I have been working in healthcare for over over 28 years, let's just say, because, you know, I'm 20. Right. <laughs> but I have been in the healthcare industry, and it was multi-specialty, and we were able to conduct a couple of clinical trials. However, I was not that involved. I was not running them, so I did not get too involved in them. But again, you know, it's exposure. We don't know a lot about it. So how are we going to participate in something we don't know anything about? And if you know the way the the Hispanic or Latino community as, you know, as what I have seen is if you don't have that trust, if you don't know who's doing this study or what the study is for, 
or what it's going to do to you or what is it going to, you know, what's going to be the outcome of the study, then you really don't want to participate because you have that hesitancy and you don't have that trust. That goes back to sort of, you don't know. Again, it's like you don't know about the trial and you don't know what the outcome of the trial. There's a lot to say about that uncertainty. Right. Exactly. Wana, have you been in a trial? I have. I was actually, and that's when I learned about the trials when I when I was diagnosed 10 years ago, approximately about eight years ago, my doctor talked to me about a clinical trial. At first I was like, oh, should I try? <laughs> uh, I was a little nervous, honestly, but when I talked to my mother, she, the first thing she said, oh, they're gonna, you're gonna be a guinea pig. So again, you know, our culture, but I decided to still go ahead and try. Well, the first thing that I thought to myself is like, okay, I think that if I put myself in a trial, I'm not only going to be helping myself, but I'm also going to be helping others in the future. And it could be my own family that I'm Mm. helping out. So that's one of the reasons that I decided to sign up for the clinical trial. Uh And then um, we also participated in a different clinical trial where we didn't have to take any medication. My sisters and I, all the sisters participated in a sister clinical trial, which was a little different. Unfortunately, we didn't find out the results and we never heard from the where we participated. And um, I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, sometimes we hesitate to participate because we don't know if we're even going to get any results back from what we do, what we did. Right. That's, you know, what's really interesting, what both of you were kind of just talking about is I know that you both created this great list that we will post in association with this episode right on on the episode page. You gave a, a good list of some of the reasons why people don't participate. And w- but just by talking and exactly. and speaking of our own personal experiences, those questions came in your head. And then also, why might people participate? And Juana, you said, well, I could help others. Right. And, you know, did how did you even come up with that? Did, did a doctor mention that to you? Or was that something that you just said, you know, I, I think that it could be helpful. I'm just curious how you came to that conclusion. I actually came across through Facebook. And then when I asked my doctor, he didn't recommend for me to do it. But he said that it was okay if I wanted to try. So I actually myself started calling different numbers until I actually found where I decided to participate. Before I participated in the clinical trial that I participated, I went to two other interviews and I I chose not to do the other two just because of the distance, but the one that I started going, I mean, he's a great doctor. I still have a connection with him. And I mean, the way he explained everything and all everything that I was doing in the trial helped me not only understand, but also, you know, just basically just helped me understand why. And uh, it made me feel, he made me feel very comfortable. So... Yeah. And one of the things that I do want to point out is Juana did not get introduced to clinical trials by her rheumatologist. Mm -hmm. So this is not who she's talking about. So the rheumatologist that she felt comfortable with that explained about the clinical trials is someone she went to because she researched it and she wanted to participate in it. And that provider, and I think that has another, that's another big point to point out is not all the times do our rheumatologists give us the opportunity to learn about these things. And I, you know, that's one of the things that I wish that we can teach and we can let even providers, PCPs, the primary care physicians or the mid-levels understand that if they let us know as patients, we may be more than willing to do it, to, you know, take that extra step. And even if it's not in the office where we're getting our care, we don't mind going if it's within a distance that we're comfortable going to, or if we know that we're, again, making a difference and we are going to impact the lives of others and make it easier for future generations, why not participate? So, And I think that if it comes from your primary physician, then it would be easier for a patient to feel comfortable in going and participating. For me, I did have to do the research. Again, I, I saw the information on Facebook, then I started doing my own research. And um, 
I found this uh, rheumatologist and I, I mean, I did the trial with him. You know, this is all I, I, one thing that I say all the time, I take furious notes when, <laughs> when I do this, because yeah. this is the whole reason why our organization exists. When we talk as people who have experienced this, we learn so much. And you, you said, I had to do my own research. Right. And you really learned from the person who was teaching you and the educational factor that the rheumatologist, you're, the one you were going to, did not mention this right. to you. All of those things are so important to point out. One of the projects that we're actually doing at our foundation is called Preparing Patients for Precision Medicine. And interestingly enough, two of the barriers that we're tackling out of many of them, one is educating so that people don't have to necessarily go out and <laughs> do their own yeah. research. And the second one is that doctors don't tell us about it. <laughs> so those are the two things that, that we're doing with, with this project that I'll, I'll talk about at the end here so if people are interested in getting involved in it. But it just goes to show you how big those two issues are. I want to circle back about uh, the diversity because that's really what we want to talk about. All people need to be included in these trials. And, you know, we talked about, Juana, gave, you gave a great overview that there's, there's different phases. Mm -hmm. They start real small, but then they get real big. And that, and I would like to preface too, that that is a, a current clinical trial. That's how clinical trials are today. As we move into precision medicine, they will get smaller. But how do we get all of the people who need to even be in those trials if we're not having a diverse population today. So I want to ask you too, what have you learned? What have you experienced? What you would give advice and why is it so important that everyone, all different cultures, ethnicities, why does everyone need to be involved in some way in clinical trials? So I can start. I think everyone needs to be involved because we are all unique. Mm -hmm. That is the first reason, primary reason that I think, you know, with lupus, and we're, ju we're just going to give that as an example. With lupus, there's not two people that are alike. So right there, we'll just get started. If we only have one specific group participate or one age group or one gender, are we going to get a broad or a great clinical trials or great results? Mm -hmm. I don't think so. So you need to include everyone. You need to include all genders. You need to include all ethnic backgrounds. You need to include, you know, just everyone, cultural backgrounds and different socioeconomic backgrounds as well. Because where you live, especially again, going back to lupus, environment, the environment you live in makes a huge difference. So environmental factors, your socioeconomic factors, does the way you live or your income level affect mm. the way you eat? You know, um, does it affect the way you, you maintain your health? Do you get checkups? Do you, you know, go to your doctor? Do you even have doctors in where you live? So all of these things factor in and how, you know, our bodies will take medication, how a treatment is going to impact our bodies, what side effects are going to impact me. And that's going to be different than how it would impact you. So I think that is one of the reasons why we need a diverse population. We need different ethnic backgrounds. We, especially with, again, focusing on lupus really quick. You know, the majority impacted with lupus are the minorities. So you have the African-American population impacted, the Hispanic Latinos, the Asian Pacific Islanders. So we are, you know, more, more predisposed or it is more common in our, mm -hmm. in our minority groups. And what happens is if you don't have our minority groups included in these studies, how are you going to know if these treatments or medications or potential medications are going to affect or react or if even they're going to be something that are going to be useful for us in the future? Mm -hmm. And I and I also want to mention, because we're international, that we're talking um, like black is what because not everybody is Afri <laughs> African American or exactly. so, um, black, yeah, you know, black, so Hispanic or Latino and mm -hmm. just everyone just needs to be included. Different countries say different things. Right. So depending on where you're, you're tuned yeah. in, 
it just wasn't. So maybe we should just say everyone should participate because there you everyone, go. Mm-hmm. everyone can be impacted and everyone will take in a medication and the side effects and the effects that it has in our bodies is unique. Absolutely. And, you know, there was a couple right. things that I'm going to reference to is, you know, you mentioned lupus and lupus does have a lot of specific differences. There's a lot more organ involvement, let's say, than in some of the other diseases. Stills disease also has a lot of organ involvement that might be a little bit more than some of the other diseases in autoimmune or or the autoinflammatory arthritis umbrella. Um, But one thing that is true of all of these diseases, regardless of the diagnosis, is that everyone seems to have their own individual form of the disease. So how you were affected first. So we all have our onset. Was it more genetic? Was it more environmental? I mean, our road, our journey starts different. And then you right. add in ethnicity and our socioeconomic factors that you, you said, Estelle. All of those mm-hmm. things factor in to our disease journeys and where we, we come out. So when you're talking about these clinical trials that, as you mentioned, Estelle, take a long time. We're talking like 10 to 15 years, right? Mm-hmm. 2.5 billion (laughs) dollars to get these medications. And these are happening in trials that are not representative of the people at the end using them. Then we're looking at treatments that potentially may or may not work in a very large percentage of our our patients. So that in itself is is something that we, we definitely have to talk about. You all gave me some statistics that I thought were interesting too. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the information that you have on the prevalence, the um, number of minorities that are participating? Yeah. So according to the American College of Rheumatology, so they have a lupus initiative program for the African-Americans and how they are represented, right? So there's 12% of the U.S. population are African-American. And only 5% participate in clinical trials. Okay, so that's huge. So when you have 12% of the U.S. population and only 5% participating in the clinical trials, there's, there's a huge gap. Now, with the Latino population, the Latinos make up approximately 16% of U.S. population and only 1% participate. Now that, to me, if that doesn't tell you enough, we need to start talking to our communities. And this is why we feel so strongly about this. We are Hispanic Latinos and we are impacted by lupus and other autoimmune conditions. Just in my family, we have, you know, two of my sisters have systemic lupus. One of my sisters has sickle cell trait. My mom has osteoarthritis. I have fibromyalgia. I mean, just in our family alone, we're, we, we can just be participating in a lot of clinical trials. But 1% of the population, of the Hispanic Latino population, that, you know, to me is, is crazy. That, that is. We definitely need to be represented and we really need to teach others the importance on why we need to participate. We definitely need new medications. We need precision medicine, like you mentioned, uh, Tiffany. We need help and we need to teach and bring people and educate people on why it's important for them to participate in clinical trials. Yeah. Yes. And bring it to them in the language that they, that they understand. Bring it to them in materials and in, the, in the, the words that they understand. Explain it to them. Explain what it is. I mean, just with listening to what Juana was talking about, the first thing she said, and I don't know if you guys caught this, she said, I asked my mom. So mm-hmm. in the Hispanic Latino community, we tend to go to our elders, to our parents, to our role models. So I would go to my sister and to my mom. Mm-hmm. My sister goes straight to my mom. So if my mom has never participated and what was my mom's response was, oh my gosh, you don't want to be a guinea pig. Right. Well, that's because that's what you hear that people take a clinical trial and associated with being a guinea pig, being, right. uh, being tested on. Mm-hmm. And right. so that's the first thing we need to, to first address. And the fear that, I mean, whatever that you might be given that could 
actually hurt you instead of help you. So it's important for all of us to be educated on why we need those clinical trials. And what type of clinical trial it is. So as we were talking about, so you have the clinical trials, those that were you either take your the medication and there are others where they're they're you know they're too blinded and we could go into more details mm-hmm. there are blind studies where you know what you're taking others where you don't know and you might be taking the placebo so there's just different types so there's also some that have surveys also some that may just require a blood sample so it just it just depends right so it's not all like a cookie cutter so i think understanding what type of clinical trial you are going to be participating and what is it that you might be taking is it going to be infused is it going to be taken orally how is it going to impact your current treatment do you then contact your rheumatologist and then address those concerns and issues and when do you know to stop if it's affecting you or if it's causing a lot of issues? Who do you call if you have questions about the clinical trials? How long the clinical trial is? So I think, you know, when addressing, giving the information up front to the patient may already be helpful for them to decide that they want to participate because you want to give them all the tools they need, all the information that they need. One of the things that is also very interesting and unique to our community is we have to think about clinical trials. Why do people enter them? I know, Juana, you mentioned you were curious. Uh, Were you looking, seeking out a different type of treatment? What was the motivator for you to want to join the trial? I know that you thought that this could help others, but was there another driving factor that brought you to the trial? Of course, you know, thinking that, well, maybe that I could be given a medication that it's really going to work for me, especially uh, at that time, I was going through a lot of ups and downs with my condition. I was in and out of the hospital. So knowing that the medication that I was taking wasn't really working, I thought about, well, if I participate in this trial, mm-hmm. I could possibly be getting a medication that it's not only going to help me, but it's going to help others. So yes, definitely why I participated or the reason that I participated is because I wanted to see if this new medication could potentially help me get better and go into remission. And you just demonstrated exactly what we said in the beginning, why the patient is the expert. When so many pharmaceutical companies or other stakeholders say, why can't we get people to participate in trial? I think that we need to ask, why would you want to? Right? Right. So we have our barriers, but and I, I was a very simple question I asked you. Why did you want to? And right. you were very honest. And the thing that's unique about our community that might be different than others, like perhaps cancer or you know a community where there's different reasons behind why you might want to participate, in our community, it seems to be that either you are out of options, you've tried everything, you've exhausted everything, or you're simply not controlled. And you're looking for something that's going to keep you controlled because the people that are not participating, in addition to our other barriers that we're talking about, Mm -hmm. people who are controlled. Because why would you take the risk to go into a trial if if your disease is under control, right? Right. So when when we're thinking about reaching out and doing our outreach and saying this education, I think we, as people who are trying to educate people, we really need to start also asking, why would you want to? Because there's no reason to waste time on on people who would not go into it because there's really no real reason to go into it. But they also have to, or people also have to understand that they don't necessarily have to participate in a trial where they're going to be taking something, some That's true. Type of medication. There's a lot of different trials that could also help them and help others. And obviously, you know, a lot of the times that we do participate is to see if it can help us or just thinking in general, you know, whatever I contribute can help others. So 
definitely there's not only one clinical trial that, that you can participate in. You can participate in the different other ones where you have to answer questions mm-hmm. every so often or you have to provide I don't know, your heart rate. So there's different trials that you can participate, not necessarily, you know, taking something that could affect you. That is such a good point. And that's what we mentioned in the very beginning was that we said, you know, you could, we have the treatment trials. And I think that's what a lot of people think. Right. They just automatically think it's medication trial, but you're right. Exactly. There are, there's different ways that we can participate. And I know I was a reviewer, the patient reviewer at a National Institute of Health, the um, arthritis and muscular skeletal sector. And I can't tell you how many grants for trials were on fatigue. I mean, because it, it, it's, it's a huge burden to our diseases. And I, I know, hey, if I could be at a trial that's going to help my fatigue, I might just do that. <laughs> right? So, yeah. so that's a really good point. I think when we're starting to educate more and, and get people interested, that's, you know, okay, your medication's not working. Okay, well, this not, then maybe. Oh, you really don't like your fatigue? <laughs> maybe or this or the sleep and the stress and those are the other things so fatigue stress and sleep those are three things that I think there has been more studies or I've seen more studies on that and none of those Mm -hmm. or most of those do not require medication to be taken some of them are you know you hear now with the apple watch you know there's studies that will track that one of the things that we're doing as well, my sister and I, we are participating in the All of Us Research Program, mm-hmm. which I don't know if you've heard about it. That's huge because that's that's where this is all headed, right? Where we are able to contribute and you know participate and find not just a cure or better treatments for lupus or for fibromyalgia or for one specific disease, but for all diseases that may impact all of our communities. So that's been huge. But, you know, just to kind of go back to the the different types of studies, one of the things that we realized with my sister, she wasn't in a study, but yet she was using her Fitbit to track her symptoms, right? And that is why she got her diagnosis of AFib. You know, so those are things that you see now that are actively being used in clinical trials and different studies. So these extra, you know, artificial intelligence devices. Mm-hmm. And I just, I did want to just preface for those of you who may not be familiar, the All of Us Research Program is something that was started. Now, I don't know the year. I can't remember. It was recent in the last couple of years, last few yes. years through the National Institute of Health. Correct. And right. I believe, I could be wrong. I believe the goal was to, uh, the initial goal was to get a million people that's the goal. Still. Okay, that's good. the goal. Yeah. <laughs> <So> we, <laughs> I'm going off of memory yeah, here. <laughs> so my sister and I are virtual team advisors for the All of Us Research Program. And, you know, one of the things that we wanted to do besides talk about our clinical trials is one of the things we wanted to do is what can we do besides just specific clinical trials on fibromyalgia? Now, if you are aware with fibromyalgia, there's not a lot of studies out there. And, you know, there were some times where I would go to the clinical trials site, the clinicaltrials.gov, and I couldn't find a clinical trial, even if I wanted to participate, even if I had the knowledge, even if I had the willingness, I couldn't go because they were further out more than like 200 miles away from me. So how can I participate if I want to? So even knowing where to go to, even knowing and being willing to do so, I wasn't able to. There's so many challenges out there. So, you know, when we came across the All of Us research, we thought, why not do this? And why not do it now? And why not us, right? So that's one of the things that has been our motto is, if we can help one person get educated or participate, that person may be the one that can connect the dots and help find better treatments for all of us. So, you know, that's one of the things, again, why we bring and we raise so much awareness is because I think not only involving everyone, all races, all ethnicities, all backgrounds, we need to also learn about the different modalities and the different ways that we can, you know, find these research studies. So all of us research is one avenue. The clinicaltrials.gov is another one. Now, a lot of people, I think they're revamping it, by the way, a lot of people 
you know, it's, it's hard for them to go there and research because, you know, with lupus, if you have systemic lupus erythematosus, you might not even know how to spell it. So you can't even, you know, you won't you're find, right. the, search. You <laughs> well, won't find if, the search. You're right. Because if you just type in lupus, there's a lot of different kinds of lupus. It's not just yes. one type. So exactly. Right, you're right. And then not only do you find the one that you think you may qualify for, you might not even qualify for that specific study because either you have taken a certain medication in the past. So there's a lot of hurdles and a lot of things, even for those of us that know how to get to these clinical trials and are willing to. So again, I think it goes back to educating and bringing the awareness and letting people know that there are places to go to and people to go to, to get the information. So what you're doing here, Tiffany, is great because now if I'm listening to this podcast, I can say, you know what, maybe my mom has a a condition and I'm listening to this podcast And then I know I can go to you and you can guide me Mm -hmm. and you can not only guide me, but you will, you will let me know and connect me with other organizations that may be able to help me and, you know, and support me while I transition or look into looking into the clinical trials. So that is why I think it's amazing that you're doing this. And I am so grateful that you have this platform and you invited us because again, looking at 1% of the U.S. population and I mean, I don't know about you, but I know there's a lot of Hispanic and Latinos here, right? So we have what? (laughs) (laughs) Well, on this show alone. (laughs) On this show alone, right? (laughs) You're definitely, you're definitely dominating. Look, I found this, I found this today. I was looking in Science Direct. That's where I got this from. Science Uh Direct, because of changing demographics, it is estimated that more than 50% of U.S. alone, and again, we're, we're international here, but this is yes. just a quote about the United yeah. States population is projected to be other than white by 2045. Yeah. You know, I mean, we're, we've got to start thinking about this. That's a whole, I mean, that's a whole other topic too, yeah. is that we're people are mixed races as well. So there's a exactly. whole, <laughs> there's a whole other, we could other, go deep into We this. could, <laughs> we could, but that's why what we like to do with these shows is this is, this is sort of the, the step one, the phase one, we are introducing this, we're putting this topic on the table and what'll happen is we will be able to come back and revisit this topic with many ways to branch out. Uh, and all of the the episodes do that. They will eventually become their own series. So we have plenty of time to come back and yeah. do that. But something that we were talking about that we we're talking about it before this as well is this idea that clinical trials, as we know them, not only as we move into precision medicine, that's going to change the the design. But now we're in the time of COVID nineteen. Yes. <laughs> How <laughs> and, scary is that, right? And now a lot of things, all of the existing trials are having to figure out how to move to telemedicine and telehealth and video calls. And there's just a lot happening right now. And the three of us were talking about this beforehand. So what do you think about the fact that one of the barriers is transportation, getting to a trial? Some of those barriers that we know, what are your thoughts? Do you think that if we move forward with some remote clinical trials that it might help? You know, it's it's so interesting. So you will see some barriers, you know, just be knocked down. So that's one beauty of this, right? So I always like to highlight on the positive. So one positive thing about this whole COVID-19 has been the fact that we are now, you know, kind of been forced to shift to the new era and to start utilizing video conferencing more to start, you know, telecommuting and to start using, you know, telemedicine for appointments. So I think we were forced and that's why a lot of the, um, you see now, you know, a lot, like I had my, my consult via telemedicine, Mm -hmm. but this was not the first time that I had done it. I had done it in the past before COVID-19. So because I was comfortable with it, I work in IT healthcare. Now, maybe not something that maybe some people were were comfortable with. They wanted that face-to-face interaction. Now we are being forced to to use telemedicine. So I think the commute or for those communities that don't have transportation or those people that don't have transportation or a rheumatologist in their area, now Mm -hmm. it's going to be great for them because now they're going to have the resources to be able to get the treatments 
and to be able to get the care that they need via telemedicine. So that's huge. That's great. Absolutely. I was at ULAR, which is the European Congress, which is similar. It's a scientific meeting that happens annually in, in Europe. Then it, the comparable is the American College of Rheumatology scientific meeting, which I was with with you all. Yes. <laughs> Saw you ladies there. Um, and when we went last year, there was a big push for telemedicine, telehealth, and the whole the whole concept of if we could get more more diversity and more reach to rural areas, why wouldn't we do that? And so I find it so fascinating that there was that big push, and now here all of a sudden, there's no one to push back on it. It is exactly. It we is. I, to. I don't know what my poor mom's going to do, I have to say, because <laughs> she does not even use a computer and she is going to freak out when she has to do her first tele, <laughs> tele <laughs> <Yeah>. call <laughs> with her doctor. I, I guess that, and she's not going to like that one bit, but it will be interesting. As far as the clinical trials, I think it's going to open up uh, and it's going to clear a lot of barriers. That being one, you know, being inclusive of those people that are in those rural communities that can't get the care or can't participate, you know, just with the COVID-19. And I think you guys are part of the whole COVID-19 and the survey. One of the things mm -hmm. that I just realized, 9,000 patients that have a rheumatic disease took that survey. 9,000 yeah. in three weeks. Yeah. So what does that tell you? <laughs> Uh, it, the, what she's talking about with the survey, it's the COVID-19 Global Rheumatology Alliance. And you all are signed up as a supporter. Yes. I saw that. Yes. And I've been in the behind the scenes committees as well. And, and working, I worked on the survey that the patients, <laughs> that the patients have been doing, but yeah, there was a, there, I, it's amazing how many have taken it. And I am very curious though, uh, to see the breakdown of diversity. I don't oh, know yeah. if that was published yet or not. They, they have not published that because I'm on that. Let me tell you. And that's why I know <laughs> that there's 9,000 because that, that was published out today. It is only broken down by, by disease. Okay. So, you know, you'll see how many with lupus, how many, you know, with AS and rheumatoid arthritis, but, you know, you don't see it yet. So I'm hoping that we get those numbers, just like I'm hoping with this COVID-19 and and I think this was a blessing in disguise, this COVID-19. It's not only pushed us to be more cautious, it's pushed us to use telemedicine. You know, and again, I'm only focusing on the positive. I'm not saying that yes. it was a COVID-19 is great. But when you look at the positive, like all the things that we're gaining from this, there are, you are now seeing the socioeconomic and the impact in our minority communities more. It's, it's highlighted even more just like these clinical trials, right? Mm -hmm. Which kind of emphasizes the importance of being inclusive and including and making sure that everyone has the equal treatment and, the, and everyone has the health care that they need, that everyone's able to participate. And one of the things that I, I'm looking forward to is, obviously, we've seen already the statistics about, you know, it is impacting the minorities more. And I want to see those, those stats about how many people, you know, our race and ethnicities and how it's impacted our, our communities more. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, we were, I, I'm also just really curious because there's been such a difficulty getting the diversity in the clinical trials. There are now almost, when we go on the clinical trial site, everybody's turning to COVID-19 trials and knowing the percentage of minorities that are being affected. I do wonder, will this be the time that they become more interested in being part of trials? I don't know. You know, that, that is a good question. You know, one of the things that I saw and, and I, again, you know, with, with all of us bringing in all of us research, one of the things that I saw is that they're going to start promoting it more, right? Just imagine if we all participated we all could have better treatments sooner than later, right? Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, there's going to be, there is more awareness now. And I'm hoping that we just need to have, keep the momentum going and keep educating and have, you know, either virtual symposiums or as soon as we are able to get together, 
hold symposiums and teach others on how to get this information or how to or get this information out there to our community so everyone knows that they one that they are allowed to participate and then two also allow them to tell you why they haven't been participating mm-hmm. because you know historically in the black community you you've seen a lot of discrimination and and there's been a lot of issues in the past with them right so not just go in and push all these clinical trials and all and educate about all of this, but also hear them out. Be able to bring them to the table, just like we're having this this conversation is bring everyone to the table and give them and present to them what a clinical trial it is, why it is so important for them to participate, and how they can help shift and make a difference in their community. And I guarantee you once you tell that one person what's in it for them, they will be more willing to participate. You mentioned something about the Black community and it being an issue. Yes. So the history of the clinical trials in that community. So the gynecological experiments that were performed on slaves, right? So that's one. The Tuskegee syphilis experiment where individuals were infected and were lied to and others that were not giving, you know, given treatment. I mean, it's just, it just goes beyond the things that I would even, you know, even want to talk about, to be honest with you, because I've heard more about it. I did, I had no idea that that existed until we had a minority symposium specifically on how lupus impacts the minorities communities. And we Mm -hmm. had a speaker there and he gave us all this information. And I thought to myself, this is sad. Like if this was done to my community, yeah. why would I want to now be another experiment? Why do I want to expose myself or my, or my family to something like this, right? And that's what I meant by not just letting people know this is why we need you to be part of this clinical trial. It's not because we want to experiment on you. It's because we need you. We need you to help your community, help us understand how we can help you and your community, how these treatments are going to impact you and your community. And I think that's, you know, that's one of the things that I don't think everyone thinks about unless you've lived it or you have the knowledge. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, that is a very real history that occurred. And it's, you can't change history, but you can alter the future, right? And you, and as we keep going back, education, 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 and education and trust, because uh, yes, uh, you definitely need to have, you know, people explain and or as a doctor, I think the doctor should build a trust on their patients so that when they are, do talk about clinical trials, the, the, the patients are okay to participate. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. As we sort of wrap up into the, the tail end of our conversation here, we've talked about there's a need. Obviously, there's a need. We've talked about some of the barriers, and there's some that are very specific to different ethnicities and different cultures. So how do we get more people into clinical trials? What would you both say, based on what you've learned, your experiences, people you've spoken to, how do we get more diversity in clinical trials? For me, I think we have to go to the specific communities. We need to not just go to one specific community. We need to go to all communities. Right. And how do we do that? <laughs> well, and so- we did a, a symposium in Portland and it was, it was the black community uh, and uh, the person that presented a very good doctor, he explained. And uh, I mean, I think that he was someone that people of color trust and when he explains and he talks about the importance, I think that that that's what we need. We need to go to a specific community with somebody that they trust so that they can feel comfortable and hearing from somebody or from an expert so that they are willing to participate. Yes. And, and we can do that by holding these symposiums, by partnering right. and partnering with small organizations, with patient-centric organizations that are actually in the community. So one of the things that 
we have seen in the past is a lot of times, again, if you're in the community, right, with people, you get, you have more of a diverse group, right? Mm-hmm. And people trust you. So if I go to, you know, we hold in-person support groups. If I go to one of the, one of the people there in our support group or someone that knows me, if I tell them, you know what, this, this is what a clinical trial is, blah, blah, blah. And I tell it to them in a way where they understand it because I know them and then they know me, they trust me. So I think they'll be more willing to participate. So I think going to the communities, involving organizations that work in the communities. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking for, you know, Hispanic Latino communities, let's go to the map and let's see where (laughs) these communities are. Okay, so that's our first goal. Okay, what's our second goal? Our second goal is to partner with these organizations that work in the community, the face of the community, who they trust, who they are going to ask for. Now, granted, you're not going to get everyone to participate, but even if you get a couple of people that are willing to even come to a symposium, and I think that's what is needed. And I don't see a lot of that. Mm -hmm. Now, in a lot of the symposiums that we've had, you know, I go to the clinicaltrials.gov and I print out for whatever, you know, if it's specific to fibromyalgia or specific to lupus, and I will go and I'll put it all out in a spreadsheet and I will hand it out to people. And what happens is if you give them the material, then you're already helping them. They don't have to go home and remember Mm. what, what website you told them to go to. So give them the materials that they need, give them the information that they need and the language that they understand with and have the person that gives them this information speak the same language and understand the cultural barriers that we have. You know, if you are, you know, in the Black community and knowing these issues that happened in the past, you know, and knowing how to address them, if you're addressing a Hispanic Latino community and you know that there's religion is a barrier, right? And you believe in, you know, I'm not going to take a treatment because my, my Virgin Mary is going to heal me of this understand that people have those beliefs and be sensitive to those beliefs. So I just think, you know, going to the communities, understanding the cultural differences, getting an education on what groups or the the diverse groups that you're looking into having participate, you know, understanding what their cultural backgrounds are and, and all these issues. And, you know, just being empathetic, I think at the end of the day is as long as you treat someone with respect and empathy and compassion, I think they will see that. And that is the key, I think. Often I'll be at conferences and, and I will say too, that patients listen to patients, people who experience listen to, to people who are experienced, but it goes even a step further because a patient or a person who understands the disease and is in the same ethnic environment or the same culture understands the history, understands the the barriers from that perspective. That's your key. Just like you said, you need them both. You really need them both. That's something that we as an organization have made our, built our platform on. I love being an advocate. I know you all love having the opportunities to be advocates, but the, the fact of the matter is we're still one voice. And yes. as much as right. I, I would love to say I speak for all people, I can't possibly speak for all people. So we like to bring it back here <laughs> and, and then invite everyone else to, to come in and give their perspectives because we can only lay the groundwork. But just like in clinical trials, we need everyone. I think we need to educate the providers, to be honest with you. If we go to our doctor, that is someone we trust, right? You have that trust. They are going to make you feel better. They're going to treat you. They're going to give you something that may help. So when your PCP or your primary care physician or your rheumatologist shows you or talks to you about clinical trials, more than likely you are going to participate or or have more of a connection or a leniency to even look into it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was at a lupus conference and when they were talking about that, about educating providers, I said, what are you guys doing to educate the providers? And they said, well, there's the website, the clinicaltrials.gov. Do you know how many patients a primary care provider sees a day? Mm-hmm. They have 15 minutes per patient. They see 30 patients a day. 
They have chronic patients in their offices. They don't have time to go to a clinicaltrials.gov. So maybe if researchers had more like detailed information or educate providers and have information available for the providers to hand out, I think it'd be easier. Mm-hmm. No, that, that's a really good point. And um, one of the things that I had briefly mentioned earlier, and I'll just kind of expand on it now, is one of the projects that International Foundation for AI Arthritis is working on is I, it was called Preparing Patients for Precision Medicine. And the idea is in order to get to precision medicine trials, first, we have to teach what precision medicine is, and we have to address what current clinical trials, the current clinical platform is. And, and we're, so we're addressing two major barriers, one being that doctors do not share our clinical trials with patients. So we are working with OMERACT, some people from not actual OMERACT, it's not one of their projects, it's just some of the researchers who are on that working group, the outcome measures in rheumatology shared decision-making working group to create a shared decision-making tool that is led by people living with our diseases and then introduced to patients. So it's on an educational component, but it also, we would complete the first part of the shared decision-making tool if you think you might want to do trials, and then the patient can bring it to the doctor. So it's, it's like bringing it in. Now, the question is, how do we get it to the doctor without the doctor just saying, well, you know, I don't really want to talk about this. So we have recruited the Rheumatology Nurses Society to help us understand the culture of the offices, and they will be helping us to facilitate how to get that in. So that yeah, is one way great. that that we're, we're working on addressing that. And if you're a person living with these diseases and want to be involved in learning more about precision medicine, learning more about clinical trials, learning about this project, hey, you can even help us to develop the shared decision-making tool because that's what our organization does. You can come to the table and you can work on projects with us. So if you want to learn about that or any of the other work that we're doing in in this area, you can go on our website at AIarthritis.org and look under the research tab. So other than that, are, is there anything else that my sisters you wanted to share? You know, I just think, you know, taking a seat at the table, you know, as patients, as caregivers, as loved ones, we need to have the opportunity to see how we can be involved, how we can help. And, you know, I think a lot of us are just waiting to be asked and to be informed. Right. I think that's a really good summary there. And I also, we will put a list of different places that you could go to find clinical trials. Clinicaltrials.gov was one mentioned that is a US-based website. There are also, you can try the American College of Rheumatology or European League Against Rheumatism. Mm -hmm. I looked up different places like Australia or Canada. You can go to pretty, for the most part, if you go to your government, your main government sites, you can find links Mm -hmm. to clinical trials. Correct. I'm also going to mention the Center for Information and Study on Clinical Research Participation. Long name like our nonprofit. <laughs> so it's it's CISERP is how they say it, C-I-S-C-R-P. And they are an amazing group on education and connecting people to information on trials. So I encourage you to check out their site as well. But there are uh, different ways that that you can learn about them if you're not hearing them from your doctor. Ladies, why don't you tell everybody where they can find you? Yes. So we are on all social media platforms. So you can find us on Twitter at Looms for Lupus. So L-O-O-M-S, the number four, L-U-P-U-S. Facebook, it's the same. It's at Looms for Lupus. And Instagram as well at Looms for Lupus. And you can also visit our website at www.loomsforlupus.org. We do have all different kinds of resources for you, for your family members and loved ones in English and in Spanish. We also host in-person support groups here in Baldwin Park. Well, at least right now we're doing all virtual. So you guys can all join internationally. We actually have people even from Latin America that are logging on to our chat. So we have Facebook Live every second Saturday of the month in Spanish. So we provide support for in Spanish and we also provide support in English. So, you know, you can check us out there. And also, you know, just thank you, Tiffany, for inviting us. We really appreciate it. You know, we 
want to be able to help as much as we can, whether it's with support, whether it's with clinical trials, or just information or resources. Thank you, Tiffany. That's I'm, I am ex- I am excited that you all um, are joining. And so everyone out there listening, this is not the end of hearing from the sisters, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so their participation will continue. There is a lot of wonderful ways that they can contribute to the show. And I just love them. So, you know, I, I want them to continue <laughs> the show. But you also can talk to all of us. And you can find us on Facebook. We will post about this episode and other episodes. So you can find our organization at all of the social media, which is Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at IFAI Arthritis. We will post about this episode. And if you have any additional questions, For any of us, uh, we hope that you will put those on any of those threads. And then you also can find this and all podcast episodes at AIarthritis.org backslash podcasts. So we definitely want to make sure that you are submitting your comments. So if you don't join us on Facebook, you can always send us an email at podcast at AIarthritis.org or just shoot us a message on social media, whether it's uh, it's me or the ladies here from Looms for Lupus. If you have more questions, let us know. We'd be happy to answer them for you. Because only together with all of us having a voice can we truly solve the problems of tomorrow. So we all invite you to pull up a seat and join us at the table. AI Arthritis Voices 360 is produced by the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis. Find us on the web at www.aiarthritis.org. Join us again on Wednesday for our special breakout episode, where we bring your comments, questions, and ideas to the table. Also, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and stay up to date on all the latest AI arthritis news and events. 